So we find ourselves now two days away from what everyone has been anticipating all year long. The big elephant in the room, no pun intended, of course, is the presidential election and with the declared winner also brings with it implications for how the scope of the new normal will look, not just for America, but for the entire globe. Now, this is your first time tuning in. Make sure to catch up on what is fast becoming the streamlined plan for the whole world brought to you by the creators, partners, and activists of what has been labeled the Great Reset. The WHO is the World Economic Forum, the IMF, the UN, the Vatican, journalists, economists, world leaders, big tech, educators, and scientists. The when is now. The how is through a borderless world of fraternity that transcends traditional state and national powers and governments through what uh, the World Economic Forum labels the Fourth Industrial Revolution and its technologies, the Green New Deal policies, which will reset capitalism. And the why? Because if we don't, we're doomed. There's a lot more that goes into this, of course, but in its most simplest terms, this is the plan for the brave new world. Now, if reading and watching all of the material released by the UN, the WEF, and the Pope weren't enough, now we have Time Magazine, which has decided to do a complete issue on the Great Reset. And it's actually two issues in one. If you haven't seen it, uh, this is the famous issue whose cover page was completely altered by replacing the well-known time moniker on the very front to vote moniker. So more than just an announcement of things and news, now it's a call to action. And not that The Great Reset, which sounds like a great movie title, by the way, ever needed more legitimizing, but now time is not just simply reporting on it, but is now, as the editor-in-chief put it, a partner with the WEF on this global initiative. And for those who may not be subscribers to Time Magazine, you'll hear it here today. But before I go there, I wanted to bring your attention to a new clock. A new clock that begun its countdown on September the 17th of this year. This has uh, now been called the climate clock, and even others have begun to label this the doomsday clock. It appeared in Union Square on the 17th of September. The clock is digital, and, and while this particular countdown is, is new, the digital clock itself has been there on the 14th Street, uh, Street building for more than 20 years. And uh, this comes from a New York Times article on the new display. So a New York uh, clock that told time now tells the time remaining. Metronome's digital clock in Manhattan has been reprogrammed to illustrate a critical window for action to prevent the effects of global warming from, from becoming irreversible. So again, this is a New York Times article that was written on September the 20th, just three days uh, after the uh, clock uh, was reset. So for more than 20 years, Metronome, which includes a 60-foot-wide, 15-digit electronic clock that faces Union Square in Manhattan, 
has been one of the city's most prominent and baffling public art projects. Its, di- its digital display once told the time in its own unique way, counting the hours, minutes, and seconds, and fractions thereof to and from midnight. On Saturday, Metronome adopted a new ecologically sensitive mission. So now, instead of measuring 24-hour cycles, it is measuring what two artists, Gan Golan and Andrew Boyd, present as a critical window for action to prevent the effects of global warming from becoming irreversible. On Saturday at 3.20 p.m., messages including the Earth has a deadline began to appear on the display. Uh, Then the numbers... 7-103-1540-07, which uh, uh, represent the years, days, hours, minutes, and seconds until that deadline. As a handful of supporters watched, the number which the artist said was based on calculations by the uh, Mercator Research Institute on Global Co- uh, Commons and Climate Change in Berlin began ticking down second by second. This is our way to shout the, that number from the rooftops, Mr. Golan said, just before the countdown began. Quote, the world is literally counting on us, unquote. The climate clock, as the two artists call their project, will be displayed on the 14th Street building, uh, one Union Square South, through September 27, the end of, uh, uh, through September 27, which is the end of Climate Week. The creators say their aim is to arrange for the clock to be permanently displayed there or elsewhere. And then the article goes on um, to uh, talk about. Uh, their um, their intent and and what their hopes are for this. Their goal of creating a large clock, a large scale clock, was influenced in part by the Doomsday Clock maintained online by the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists and by the National Debt Clock near Bryant Park in Manhattan. This is arguably the most important number in the world, Mr. Boyd said. And a monument is often how a society shows what's important, what it elevates, what is at center stage. Now, eventually, Mr. Golan and Mr. Boyd seized on Metronome, a mixed media work by Andrew Ginzel and Kristen Jones that covers a 10-story high area on the north wall of One Union Square South, a residential high-rise. The work also includes concentric circles rendered in gold-flecked brick that ripple outward from a round opening. When it was unveiled in 1999, clouds of steam and musical tones issued from the facade. Over the years, the sound and steam have ceased. The numbers, however, kept moving. And then onward in the article, uh, it says, The climate clock will remind the world every day just how perilously close we are to the brink. Stephen Ross, chairman of Related Companies, the developer that owns One Union Square, said in a statement. He added, this initiative will encourage everybody to join us in fighting for the future of our planet. To describe the project, Mr. Golan and Mr. Boyd have created a website, climateclock.world. It includes an explanation for the climate clock numbers, including a link to a report by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the United Nations body that assesses the science related to climate change. The report, issued in 2018, said global warming was likely to reach 1.5 degrees Celsius over pre-industrial levels between 2030 and 2052 if it continues at the current rate. 
That level of warming is projected to increase damage to many ecosystems and cause an estimated $54 trillion in damage, the report said. The website also tracks the growing percentage of the world's energy supplied from renewable sources, and it provides directions on how to build small, low-cost clocks like the one given to Miss Greta Thunberg. Mr. Boyd said near Union Square on Saturday, you can't argue with science, you just have to reckon with it. Now, plenty of environmentalists and activists' organizations have been calling for a radical change in carbon emissions, fossil fuels, etc. And in the last few years, we've seen how politicians like AOC and many on the progressive left have been shouting this doomsday scenario from the rooftops. And the language is not subtle. It's as dramatic as you can get. First, they said it was 11 years, I think, and now it's seven years. And of course, seven years, not to complete annihilation, right? But a certain, but, but the seven years brings us to a certain point of no return that leads towards a, an actual doomsday scenario. Now, what I find so curious about this new artwork, as it were, is that now scientists, artists, politicians, religionists, and secularists alike have now taken on the role of prophets, in a way. But since the dawning of the, uh, of the new millennium, we've heard predictions from climate change proponents about rising sea levels that uh, completely uh, uh, destroy cities, and, and, and then also the uh, disappearing of particular species, glaciers. And, and look, here we are, 2020, none of these predictions have come to pass. So how can we know with complete certainty that this climate prophecy will indeed be fulfilled without a radical and extreme globalist agenda in order to save the planet? What precedent do we have to give us proof that we can trust such a prognosis? You know, it, 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 it's so fascinating to me because while I can appreciate the intention of saving humankind, the most obvious question is, well, what comes after all this? In other words, how will we know when the seven-plus-year countdown has expired that we actually turned the tables? How do we know? Who's going to come and declare, mission accomplished? No one has really given us that answer. Oh, we know the other scenario. We'll all die. Wonderful. So, are these new climate watch guardians asking us to have faith in them? Come on, it's a legitimate question. How else can we know with so much of the science changing and evolving over the years on this issue, and really over the past two or three decades, how do we know for sure? Because if Boyd is telling us, quote, you can't argue with science, then in effect what he's saying is that this prognostication or this prophecy cannot be changed or questioned. It can't be challenged even by any alternative empirical data. You just have to accept it as truth. You know, it's funny because that sounds a lot like religion or dogma to me. And what you do then is take what the scientists have said on this issue, put it in a few songs, uh, put, it in, put it into a few paintings and art pieces, and it can't be argued with, really. 
I've constantly stated what the true nature of liberty and truth are. They are the freedom to think, choose, and believe as you choose. And the very nature of our being created equal grants us these liberties and rights. And it couldn't be better said or expressed as when Thomas Jefferson wrote, Question with boldness even the existence of God, for if there be a God, he would rather honest questioning than blindfolded fear. Religion has always carried with it this specter of control through fear. And it is one of the most ardent criticisms by detractors and atheists. Why would anyone want to follow a God who uses fear to manipulate those whom he has created? As we have continually seen historically, this is, the, this is the legacy of the Roman Catholic Church and what they have left for us, ruling through fear and coercion. So this is what we are to expect of the climate science gods of our age, because Boyd goes on to say, you just have to reckon with it. That's pretty tough talk. So whether we accept it or not, whether we like it or not, We can't question or doubt this scientific fraternity because you can't argue with science. The science is settled. And not just the science, but times. The times are settled. And very soon, laws that will force us to comply or else. Because you just have to reckon with it. A countdown to doomsday. A dogma fear, apocalypse, and a prophecy of human annihilation. Yeah, seems like a religion to me. So moving on to Time Magazine, uh, the editor-in-chief, Edward uh, Felsenthal, writes this editorial on the issue of our times, and it's, it's quite extraordinary in its scope and language, uh, so much uh, so that I think it best to read it all here for you. There's one line from this editorial that I can agree with because it, it, it is truth. He says, We stand at a rare moment, one that will separate history into before and after for generations. Now, obviously, this is written in the context of climate activism and the overall geopolitical reset. There's a before and after, but it has nothing to do with climate, economics, or a reset. It has to do with liberty and tyranny. That's what it has to do with. To a certain extent, I I do believe that Some of these leaders and journalists have good intentions. I do. Not all of them are nefarious. I think what they are, though, is desperate. They're desperate for the madness to stop. They're trying to find something to anchor themselves to, but they really don't know. So, of course, they talk about themes of equity, 
fairness, unity, fraternity, because these are, in and of themselves, good things. But what's the old saying? The road to hell is paved with good intentions. This is why we cannot abdicate our our own God-given liberty to those who come promising peace and safety, because in the end, it becomes about power and control. So here's the editorial. I'm going to read through the whole thing so that you can listen to it. And as always, you'll be able to see um, the links to articles uh, and videos and all of our resources at truthreel.transistor.fm. So again, this is from the editor of Time. Before and after. I don't often use this space to direct your attention to other publications, but I do recommend you check out an article uh, in Science published online on September 24th titled Singing in a Silent Spring. It adds a new entrant to the list of uplifting changes in the natural world that occurred when we humans went into temporary into temporary retreat at the start of the pandemic. It appears that in the relative hush of the San Francisco Bay Area this past April and May, the song of the white-crowned sparrow became quieter and sweeter than it had before. This has been a year of so much pain, hardship, chaos, and loss. And yet as nations around the world begin to rebuild from the pandemic, it is clear that we also have a -a once-in-a-generation opportunity to change our tune. Our issue this week, in partnership with the World Economic Forum, explores that opportunity with the forum's chairman, Klaus Schwab, who has called it the Great Reset. How can we seize this moment of disruption to push for a world that is healthier, more resilient, sustainable, and just? What do all of us, individuals, businesses, and governments, need to do to ensure that we don't simply revert to what was before. Schwab, while acknowledging that it's hard to be optimistic about the prospect of a brighter global future, offers some glimmers of hope in the form of companies that are redefining success to be about more than profits. Economist Mariana Matsukato provides a roadmap for transforming our financial structures. Danish architect Bjark Ingels describes his extraordinarily ambitious master planet, a blueprint for a great for a greener earth. Now, I, I, I have to pause here. I mean, I don't know if if to laugh about this clever wordplay, but did they actually just call this blueprint for greener or, or, or for green policies the master planet? <laughs> I mean, there's so many implications that can be derived by by this label. I mean, usually it's the villain of the story that uses anything sounding like master anything, right? But hey, that's that's just a side note. Okay, so let's 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 continue on here with the article. Uh, so our correspondents around the globe speak with business leaders and policymakers about their more immediate plans from Tokyo's uh, governor. Uh, uh, Yuriko Koike, uh, I don't know if I pronounced that right, uh, who is currently preparing for the rescheduled Olympic Games in 2021, to Citigroup's newly appointed CEO, Jane Frazier, the first woman to run a major Wall Street bank. We've also included excerpts of conversations from our Time 100 Talks, uh, hosted in October by Harry and Meghan, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, on how to build a better digital world. 
and they proceed to give us uh, the um, the links for that. I'm just moving forward here. To mark this historic moment, arguably as consequential a decision as any of us has ever made at the ballot box, we have for the first time in our nearly 100-year history replaced our logo on the cover of our U.S. edition with the imperative for all of us to exercise the right to vote. To help, we've provided readers with a guide on how to vote safely during this extraordinary year. The artwork on the cover is by Shepard Ferry, blah, blah, blah. And he goes on about talking about that. And then he finishes with a statement. We stand at a rare moment, one that will separate history into before and after for generations. It is the kind of moment in which readers across the country and around the world have always turned to time. We thank you for doing so now. So that's the editorial. Now, look, the message every four years or every eight, depending on who's occupying the White House, is always change. It's the vicious cycle that just doesn't ever seem to let up. So we must change our tune in 2020. That's what he said. So the question must be changed to what? Who decides what tune that is? What, what, what happens with those who refuse to sing that tune? This leads me to the article um, that I wanted to get to in this special issue of Time that I, that, that, that I really want to focus on. Uh, I'll, I'll also I'll be reading this article in its entirety. This is the title article of the issue on The Great Reset. It's a piece written from the point of view of the future. Again, just as with the doomsday clock in Manhattan, we cannot ignore the prophetic implications uh, in Matsukatu's piece entitled How We Bounced Back, a dispatch from 2023 on how the world came together to create a more sustainable, inclusive economy. So again, this piece is written by Mariana Matsukato. The year is 2023. The COVID-19 pandemic has come to an end, and the global economy is on the path to recovery. How did we get here? How did our economy and society evolve to overcome the greatest crisis of our age? Let's begin in the summer of 2020, when the unabated spread of disease was, her- was heralding an increasingly dire outlook for economies and societies. The pandemic had exposed critical vulnerabilities around the world, underpaid essential workers, an unregulated financial sector, and major corporations neglecting investment in favor of higher stock prices. With economies shrinking, governments recognized that both households and businesses needed help and fast. But with memories of the 2008 financial crisis still fresh, the question was how governments could structure bailouts so they would benefit society rather than prop up corporate profits and a failing system. In an echo of the golden age of capitalism, the period after 1945 when Western nations steered finance toward the right parts of the economy, it became clear that new policies were needed to address climate risks, incentivize green lending, scale up financial institutions, 
against tackling social and environmental goals and banned financial sector activity that didn't serve a clear public purpose. Public purpose. The European Union was the first to take concrete steps in this direction after agreeing in August to a historic 1.8 trillion euro recovery package. As part of the package, uh, the EU made it mandatory for governments receiving the funds to implement strong strategies for addressing climate change, reducing the digital divide and strengthening health systems. In late 2020, this ambitious recovery plan helped the euro stabilize and ushered in a new European renaissance, with citizens helping to set the agenda. The European leadership used challenge-oriented policies to create 100 carbon-neutral cities across the continent. This approach led to a resurgence of new energy-efficient buildings, revamped public transport designed to be, uh, to be sustainable, accessible, and free and an artistic revival in public squares with artists and designers rethinking city life with citizenship and civic life at its heart. Governments used a digital digital revolution to improve public services from digital health to e-cards and create a citizen-centered welfare state. This transformation required both supply-side investments and demand-side pools, with public procurement becoming a tool for innovative thinking that funneled through all branches of government. The U.S. began to change its. Uh, sorry, let me go back. The U.S. began to change its approach after November 3, 2020, when Joe Biden defeated Donald Trump in the presidential election and the Democrats held a majority in both houses of Congress. Now, I've got to stop here and just point out that this this is incredibly presumptuous. <laughs> no doubt wishful thinking on 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 her part. But but what this reveals is that all of this future cannot unfold as she is predicting unless Tuesday's result is a Biden win. Trump must go. She's not saying it that way. But in other words, it's got to be Biden. That couldn't be clearer in this futuristic reimagination. And it's not just a Biden win, but that both the House and Senate have Democratic control. Now, you realize what she's pushing for here, right? Not a balanced, balanced and diverse government, but a majority rule direct democracy that completely reverses everything our founding fathers fought for and died for. It is honest debate that actually preserves our God-given liberty and that keeps fascism and top-down rule at bay. What she is in fact endorsing is a system of government that leads to tyranny. Moving on. Following his inauguration in January 2021, President Biden moved quickly to rebuild frayed ties between America and Europe, setting up a forum to share collective intelligence that could inform a smarter form of government. European governments were eager to learn from the investment strategies used by the U.S. government, like those led by defense research agency DARPA, to spur research and development in high-risk technologies. And the U.S. was eager to learn from Europe how to create sustainable cities and and reinvigorate civic participation. With COVID-19 still rampant, the world woke up to the need to prioritize collective intelligence and put public value at the center of health innovation. The U.S. and other countries dropped opposition to a mandatory patent pool run by the World Health Organization that prevented pharmaceutical companies from abusing patents to create monopoly profits. Bold conditions were placed on the governance of intel- of 
of intellectual property pricing and manufacturing of COVID-19 treatments and vaccines to ensure the therapies were both affordable and universally accessible. As a result, pharmaceutical companies could no longer charge whatever they wished for drugs or vaccines. Governments made it mandatory for the pricing to reflect the substantial public contribution to their research and development. This this extended beyond COVID-19 therapies, impacting the pricing of a range of medicines from cancer therapies to insulin. Richer countries also committed to increasing manufacturing capabilities globally and using mass global procurement to buy vaccines for poorer countries. On February 11, on February 11, 2021, the FDA approved the most promising COVID-19 vaccine for manufacture in the U.S. Mass production began immediately. Plans for swift global distribution kicked in, and the first citizens received their shots within three weeks, free at the point of use. It was the fastest development and manufacture of a, of a vaccine on record and a monumental success in health innovation. When the vaccine was ready for distribution, national health authorities worked constructively with a coalition of global health actors led by the WHO, uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and others to collectively devise an equitable global distribution plan that supported public health goals. Low and middle income countries, along with health workers and essential workers, were granted priority access to the vaccine while higher income countries rolled out immunization programs in parallel. The end was in sight for our health crisis, but in June 2021, the global economy was still in a depressed state. As governments started debating their uh, their opinions for new stimulus packages, a wave of public protests broke out, with taxpayers in Brazil, Germany, Canada, and elsewhere calling for shared rewards in exchange for bailing out corporate giants. With Biden in office, the U.S. took those demands seriously and attached strong conditions to the next wave of corporate bailouts. Companies receiving funds were required to maintain payrolls and pay their workers a minimum wage of $15 per hour. Where have we heard that before? Firms were permanently banned from engaging in stock buybacks and barred from paying out dividends or executive bonuses until 2024. Businesses were required to provide at least one seat on their boards of directors to workers, and corporate boards had to have all political spending approved by shareholders. Collective bargaining agreements remained intact, and CEOs had to certify that their companies were complying with the with the rules or face criminal penalties for violating them. Globally, gold standard bailouts were those that safeguarded workers and sustained viable businesses that provided value to society. This was not always a clear-cut exercise, especially in industries whose business models were incompatible with a sustainable future. Governments were also eager to avoid the moral hazard of sustaining unviable companies, so the U.S. uh, shale sector which was unprofitable before the crisis, was mostly allowed to fail, and workers were, re- were retrained for the, for the Permian Basin's fast-growing solar industry. In the summer of 2022, the other major crisis of our age took a turn for the apocalyptic. Climate breakdown finally landed in the developed world, testing the resilience of social systems. In the mid western U.S., a severe drought wiped out crops that supplied one-sixth of the world's grain output. People woke up to the need for governments to form a coordinated response to climate change and direct global fiscal stimulus in support of a green economy. Yet this was not about just big government, but smart government. 
The transition to a green economy required innovation on an enormous scale, spanning multiple sectors, entire entire supply chains, and every stage of technological development, from R&D to deployment. At regional, national, and supranational levels, ambitious Green New Deal programs rose to the occasion, combining job guarantee schemes with focused industrial strategy. Governments used procurement grants and loans to stimulate as much innovation as possible, helping fund solutions to rid the ocean of plastic, reduce the digital divide, and tackle poverty and inequality. A new concept of a healthy Green New Deal emerged, in which climate targets and well-being targets were seen as complementary and required both supply and demand side policies. The concept of social infrastructure became as important as physical infrastructure. For the energy transition, this meant focusing on a future of mobility strategy and creating an ambitious platform for public transportation, cycling paths, pedestrian pathways, and new ways to stimulate stimulate healthy living. In Los Angeles, Mayor Eric Garcetti successfully turned one lane of the 405 freeway into a bicycle lane and broke ground in late 2022 on a zero-carbon underground metro system free at the point of use. Rising to the role of the entrepreneurial state, government had finally become an investor of first resort that that co-created value with the public sector and civil society. Just as in the days of the Apollo program working for government, rather than for Google or, 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 or Goldman Sachs, became the ambition for top talent coming out of university. Government jobs became so desirable and competitive, in fact, that a new curriculum was formed for a global master in public administration degree for people who wanted to become civil servants. And so we stand here in 2023, the same people, but in a different society. COVID-19 convinced us we could not go back to business as usual. The world has embraced a new normal that ensures public-private collaborations are driven by public interest, not, not private profit. Instead of prioritizing shareholders, companies value all stakeholders, and financialization has given way to investments in workers, technology, and sustainability. Today, we recognize that our most valuable citizens are those who work in health and social care, education, public transport, supermarkets and delivery services by ending precarious work and prop and and properly funding our, our our public institutions we are valuing those who hold our society together and strengthening our civic infrastructure for the crisis yet to come the COVID-19 pandemic took so much from us in lives lost and livelihoods shattered, but it also presented us with an opportunity to reshape our global economy, and we overcame our pain and trauma to unite and seize the moment. To secure a better future for all, it was the only thing to do. Now, this is not so much a prophetic forecast as it is a premeditated blueprint for how those in power want things to go. Remember, the main objective of the, of the benevolent proponents of the Great Reset is to reset capitalism, and it won't be done in one fail swoop. But with all of this proposed regulation to be imposed on business in favor of a welfare state, as she clearly stated, will absolutely destroy free market enterprise. 
This turn of events towards apocalypse, she also uses this word, is also vital for this plan to unfold as she outlines. Crisis is required, right? Nothing like a good crisis that doesn't, that, that you don't let go to waste. Without it, there is no reset. That is why the politics of fear is needed, because the boogeyman is out to get you. We haven't seen the boogeyman yet, but we know, because science says so, that it's out there somewhere. The boogeyman is that catalyst that keeps the population susceptible to control. Because you see, as long as this fear is out there somewhere, we have to trust our benevolent self-proclaimed heroes to protect us. This is the better future. One where control is given to an elite few for the public welfare of the many. Yeah, sounds like Disney's greatest fairy tale come true, doesn't it? This is the new postmodernist dogma. But once again, as the reader, we have to ask, what about death? What about evil itself? How does the new normal tackle those issues? You see, this is what separates an evolutionist worldview from a creationist worldview. The evolutionist talks about the salvation of the species regardless of individual personhood, and sees equity in the form of numbers and equations. And this dogma measures value in terms of what are acceptable losses, who are the disposables for the good of the whole race. The creationist values individuality above all, the distinctiveness of each person as worth preserving because of who they are, and how that uniqueness can contribute by innovation and liberty of conscience towards the salvation of each created individual. This is the true definition of love. This is the truth of who each of us is because of a, because of a dynamic, intentional creator that values each of us, not by groups, but by individual personhood. Not by a collective, but by an intimate one-on-one -on -one relationship that each of us chooses for. And it is because of that nature of creation that you and I are worth saving. Recently, I came across a book that records a series of lectures given by one H. Grattan Guinness. He was a late 19th century British lecturer, author, and, and, and preacher. And in case you were wondering about the last name Guinness, yeah, uh, it's of the same famous family of brewers. And you can actually buy his lectures uh, given in the late 1880s on the history of Romanism and the Reformation for 99 cents. Uh, that's, that's what I got it for uh, off of uh, iBooks. 
These lectures offer us in the 21st century not only a clear look at the history of the Reformation and what it means for their own time, but even more importantly, what it means for us, especially as we're now less than 48 hours from the presidential election. And this is not so much about religion as it is about liberty of conscience. And to understand that the Great Reformation of the Renaissance is what ultimately leads towards the Enlightenment and birth of America. In fact, I would go as far as to say that without the Great Reformation in Europe, there would be no America as we know her today. And just yesterday, October 31st, we marked the 503rd anniversary of the beginning of that historic and revolutionary Reformation. In fact, Guinness makes this startling statement about this very thing in his opening lecture where he says this, As Protestants, as Christians, as free men, as philanthropists, as those who are acquainted with the teachings of history, we deplore the existing state of things. We regard all these changes as a retrograde movement of the most dangerous character, and we feel constrained to renew the grand old protest to which the world owes its modern acquisitions of liberty, knowledge, peace, and prosperity. Now, obviously, Guinness is speaking to his own generation at the tail end of British and European prominence and on the dawn of a whole new century. But we can all relate with this statement when he says, we deplore the existing state of things. He talks about the dangers of his own time as a retrograde or a return to the tyranny of the past, a repeating of history in the present. And here we are again, experiencing a retrograde movement of the most dangerous character. Because the stakes are just as high as at the dawn of the Great Reformation as they are now. It's about the truth of our individual liberty. And this protest to which he is calling on to be renewed in our time isn't the same as the protests we have seen in the 21st century, especially over the last decade and specifically in the last four years. The protest of the Great Reformation was not carried out in meaningless marches with men in masks using fear and intimidation as a means to manipulate and force the consciences of others to comply with their ideology or else. Violence was not the language of that protest. It wasn't done with hate and a spirit of revenge and spite. It was done with honor. Decency based on the principles of free thought, honest questioning in the spirit of goodwill towards all, neighbors and opponents alike, and the love of the truth. The Protestant Reformation continues, especially as we see the age-old hatreds of the past reemerge as they have now. Would these detractors of liberty, this, this mob, Go as far as using the threats, tortures, and even willful murder of countless many as did the Roman church in the name of justice and peace? Time magazine, the WEF, and the current pope may not be using this language, but those who are calling for revolution on the streets are willing to go that far. If it means your life or my own life against the common good of all, then would this new globalist power think twice about silencing your voice or my voice? 
We've already seen that they're calling for the rewriting of our basic rights to religion, property, and free commerce. Because remember, you can't argue with science. You can't argue with the doomsday clock. And it's funny how that same radical dogma sounds a lot like you can't argue with the church. You can't question her supremacy. You can't question her policies. So if society is willing to accept the new doomsday prophecy, this new scenario of faith that they've presented to us, based on the science that has time and again had to change and update its conclusions based on new data and not just forecasts, which are just best guesses based on hypothesis and theory, then why is it that a great many cannot accept the prophecy given to us by the very creator who gives us and respects our natural-born liberty? Is it so far-fetched to open up the very book that the reformers sacrificed their lives to protect, the very book that outlines not just a history of our world, but also gives us the promise of a new world where all of this mess we see today will no longer exist? People laugh at those who believe in this undeniable truth that put their faith in a final endgame that leads towards an end-of-time scenario, and yet they have now set up their own dogma, their own religion, and their own prophecy, and a call to action so much so that it requires this great reset for the common good of all. But where does that common good lead to? What promise have they given about what the new world looks like? Most would point at the book of Revelation, for example, and call it grandstanding superstition. It's a book of riddles and old world nonsense. I mean, they didn't have the benefits of modern science, so how can we take it seriously? Now, in the Greek language, which is the language used to write the New Testament, the word used to title the book of Revelation is apocalyptos or apocalypsis. Whenever we use the word apocalypse in our own modern vernacular, we take it to mean complete destruction by cataclysm or by catastrophic events. But that's not what the word actually means. The word apocalypse means to unveil, to reveal, to make known. That's it. It has nothing to do with destruction. Now, the content of the written book of the same name does include an unveiling of how history will progress to the very end and that there is an end, but that end for those who stand up for the truth isn't a great common reset. It's a complete recreation. In fact, the lectures that were given by Guinness go on to a fascinating discussion about two books of the biblical narrative that give us all a look into the tyranny of human power and that give us all hope that all of this suffering we're seeing now by earthquakes, flooding, hurricanes, famines, pandemic, and the rioting and conflicts we see around the world will have an end to them. Life is the final end of things. It Life is how the story ends, not death. And certainly not a human reset. 
And these two books that Guinness uh, points us to are the books of Daniel and then the final book we just mentioned, Revelation. Now, here we are in 2020, in the middle of a pandemic. We're just seeing hurricanes, one after the other, just battering the same areas. These uprisings and this distress of nations. The earthquakes that we've just seen the last week. Threats of revolution on the streets and world leaders and powers of history, namely the Vatican and papal power and elites calling for a global reset and these doomsday clocks and everything else. What do they indicate? And is our hope of preserving liberty in presidential elections or the truth preserved through the great reformation that leads towards the birth of our nation? Is it in the truth of a God-given liberty and of that same God freeing us all of this man-made utopia? Two scenarios. And both scenarios at this point require faith. One scenario expects and demands your compliance, regardless of your own conscience. The other scenario offers a free choice, respecting your God-given liberty to choose. Another counterpart of Guinness in the 19th century writes these words, As seen in storms and floods and tempests and earthquakes, in peril by land and by sea, At this time, we must gather warmth from the coldness of others, courage from their cowardice, and loyalty from their treason. The nation will be on the side of the great rebel leader. To stand in defense of truth and righteousness when the majority forsake us, to fight the battles of the Lord when champions are few, this will be our test. Liberty at all costs truth above all, and courage to stay the course. Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to The Truth Reel. If you want to subscribe to our podcast, you can do it where all podcasts are available. Also visit us at our website, truthreel.transistor.fm. Again, that's truthreel.transistor.fm. And if you're interested in donating to the cause of the refugees, please go to liveforone.com. That's liveforone.com. Join us as we continue to help our brothers and sisters, especially during this crisis under the COVID-19 pandemic. And stay safe out there during this election season. God bless you, your families, and God bless America.